and fellow Americans, I am very pleased and very privileged to introduce to you the next Vice President of the United States. Welcome to the Veep Stakes episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and today we are going to dive into the topic of Joe Biden's Veep Stakes. Biden's in the final days of the process to make his long-awaited and much-speculated-about decision about who will be his running mate. And on today's episode, we will join the fevered speculation and hopefully offer some insight and analysis while we're at it. Joining me in this conversation is my co-host Charlene Chang, back from her vacation to parts northern, I guess, of California. And it was a challenge to hold the fort down in her absence and delighted to have her back. Welcome back, Charlene. How was your trip? Hey, Steve. It's really good to be back. And yeah, I would say our trip was, by the way, we went camping for four days in Oregon. We were in the woods. It was full of mosquitoes. It was hot. We had to wear masks on almost the whole time because we had a social distance trip with our friends and other mm. family. And it was a ton of work to get ready. And even still, it was better than spending like yet another week or full week and full weekend at home. Yeah. So overall, it was a much needed break. I think me and my husband and daughter, we did enjoy it. And I am glad that we got out and did something to make it feel a little bit more like there was actually some sort of summer vacation since we really had not gone anywhere in like 120 days. <laughs> right, which is counting. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating because I think this was the, that's just the time of year, right? Everybody has scheduled their vacations, but obviously you're in this whole don't travel shelter in a home, et cetera, mode. And like different people in my life been like, oh yeah, I'm going on vacation. I'm like, well, my mom's like, where are you going? Where can you go at this point in time? I guess camping is the answer. Huh? Yeah, actually there's, I think it was a um, surreal experience to go out beyond our zip code because what you realize is there are a lot of people going out about, I think people definitely got fatigued with shelter in place and mm -hmm. have a range of comfort zones. So we, because the drive was long and we left at night, we did stay at a nice motel. It was actually a very nice motel, which I feel is like an oxymoron. But we were a little bit concerned at first. But then once we saw that this motel was putting all sorts of precautionary measures in plexiglass on their front desk, sanitizer in different rooms, and they were, everything was very clean. We realized that A, there's different ways that you can travel if you have the comfort zone and that, in fact, man, there were all sorts of people out and about, you know, there were yeah. definitely a lot of people at the campground and a lot of people at the motel and different kinds of places where we went on the road. We can see that, especially with families, I think they just had to get out and do something this summer. So yeah. for, for better or for worse, it's like people are just trying to find that balance. Yeah, no, definitely a lot of our my friends have been like out in the outdoors, et cetera, which is not exactly my uh, <laughs> natural place to go, right? That was the uh, a few years ago, I was on vacation in Hawaii, and then my computer power cord started fraying. Um, and then so I like ordered delivery to my vacation rental in Hawaii to bring me another power cord so I could stay on my computer. So that's how I roll. <laughs> 
no camping for you. But you brought all these, brought your whole home and spices I, and yeah, all of this. I, as I well, brought my whole right? kitchen. I brought my whole kitchen, and my the, my friends were laughing at me because they were like, "You didn't by any chance bring a coriander, did you?" I'm like, "In fact, I did." So I love cooking. Cook cooking for me. I travel for food and I camp for food. It's all about Apparently. food. All about food for me. So yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to. Our topic today, by the way, veep steaks, which I feel like when we, I love that word is so fun. I feel like when we say that confetti should fall down from the <laughs> ceiling and we should have some sort of theme song like the game shows like da, 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 da. You're the next contestant on veep steaks. So let's get into talking about that. You know, it's one of our favorite things to talk about. It seems like every week I'm like, so Steve, what about right now in this moment? Who do you think it's going to be? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? But first, I wanted to really make a note of stepping way back and putting this moment in context historically, because I think what gets lost, because now it's so easy to take it for granted, is that we are in a moment where all of the candidates that are being seriously considered for Democratic vice president on this ticket are all women and majority women of color and majority black women. So let, let's just talk about that some more because I still get very excited about that. And I, I feel that it's become such an assumption that part of the conversation gets lost. And I just want to remind people that it is, to me, is truly significant. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a good reminder. I think we can get so caught up in the specifics of each of these different individuals that we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture, right? So for just the second time in the country's history, the Democrats are going to nominate a woman for vice president, right? So back in 1984, they nominated Geraldine Ferraro on the run with Mondale. And that actually was not coincidentally connected to the fact that Jesse Jackson had run and it galvanized and shown the power of a rainbow coalition. Jesse had insisted that different women be considered for, for VP. And so, you know, Biden has committed and is following through on saying that his running mate will be a woman. And he's pledged to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. So these are not inconsequential realities in a country that, you know, was founded on the premise to be a citizen, you have to be a free white person. And that, you know, white male property holders were the people who were the most important people. So this is, a real, you know, where we are at in the country, right? This is a lot of what, you know, where you and I came together as writing the book, Brown is the New White. So we are in this demographic revolution over the past 50 years since the passage of the Civil Rights Act, right? We just lost John Lewis, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago and all of the work that he and the Civil Rights Movement had done to bring about the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Immigration and Nationality Act, all of those changes have transformed the composition of the country since the mid-1960s. People of color were 12% of the U.S. population in the 60s. They're 40% of the country's population today. And so this has brought about a reality where you could have a black man elected president that was then followed by the, a historically diverse slate of people running in 2020, the most diverse Congress ever elected in 2018. And so those factors continue to exist and accelerate despite all this administration's attempt to roll back uh, immigration. The composition of the country continues to be transformed, and that's going to have political ramifications, social change ramifications for years and decades to come. And then on top of that, right, we have the racial reckoning following the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. So all of that has created a context and a political imperative and pressure to elevate and empower people of color in general and African-Americans in particular. So Biden's selection is taking place in that context. And he is acknowledging that reality by saying, yes, 
it's definitely going to be a woman and will likely be a woman of color. And I think that imperative is really what compelled Klobuchar to actually withdraw from her consideration and to say that it should be a woman of color. So that is, is a significant moment in history. And you're correct that we should pause to appreciate it and to really celebrate that we've had this significant step in the development of our democracy. Yeah, it's just so great. And I'm just thinking, it's about time. I just, I'm so glad yeah. to- You think 400 years <laughs> is, is enough time to get to this point? Yeah. And also when it comes to, you know, sexism and, you know, fighting the patriarchy, it's like all of it is just about time. I'm here for it. And I love how normalized it's been. And in some ways, you know, I, I was saying, you know, I miss having- it being pointed out as part of the conversation, but in a way, because it's become so normalized, that's also really a great sign too, that it's really understood that these are not just the best female candidates for the position, but they are among the best candidates for the position, period. Another fact that probably not a lot of people know, but you actually know a lot of the finalists. What does it feel like to, to know that some of these top contenders, some of whom you're acquainted with through the years, they could very likely become the next VP of this country. Yeah, no, it's a little surreal on one level, but on the other hand, it's like, you know, the intensity of the challenges that we're facing, the struggles that are, that we're encountering, you know, we're in this like hundred year pandemic, this potential economic crisis worse since the Great Depression, this racial reckoning that, you know, I certainly never seen in my lifetime. So the imperatives of the moment are so kind of overwhelming that it makes it hard to really, you know, look around and say like, oh my God, all these people that I know might be vice president. But that is in fact the case, right? And so I went to college with Susan Rice. I know her from college. Um, I've known Karen Bass for almost 20 years in terms of my work in California and the, the political social change work in California. I've known Kamala and her family from San Francisco and San Francisco politics um, for 15 years, right? We started the first super PAC for Kamala back when she ran for attorney general. Known and partnered and supported uh, Stacey Abrams you know, for almost a decade now. And we had Elizabeth Warren on the podcast, right? So it is kind of, yeah, I don't know what to say, you know, to have all these people that were in, in relationship with who could potentially be the next vice president and the next president after that. So it's definitely, certainly I think for me, a moment of acknowledgement of the, you know, the, my generational moment arriving, but I also do feel a lot of responsibility attached to that. So it's how do we make the most of this? Cause these moments don't come frequently. So have you had a chance by any chance to uh, speak to any of them or text them over this period I've been of process? Somewhat, you have to be super <laughs> cautious around, like somebody was, I won't say who it was, but somebody, you know, was quoted in one of these New York Times articles who had talked to somebody and says, oh yeah, she was saying such and such. And I'm like, that's not helpful. You're not supposed to be telling the reporters what people actually say to you. So I have talked to some of them and then I've talked to like some of them about other stuff that's not this related. It's like all I could do, like an email shame somebody <laughs> about some things, all I could do to say, so do you have any big interviews planned this week? <laughs> right. But you really can't get into that. But I have had a few conversations with some of those folks. That's great. So let's talk about that process because uh, it's, it's, first of all, got many stages to it. But also I think a lot of people, including myself, just don't really know what the process is all about. So can you help us set the stage what do we know about the process and where do things stand right now? Yeah, so broad strokes. And I had actually asked some people who were the 
inner circle of Hillary Clinton in 2016, what the process was and how it worked and how it played itself out. And it is what we're seeing. It's been actually a fairly public process, right? The, the, the nominee creates a vetting committee, and then that committee looks at a number of different prospects. Broadly, there's a lot of polling to see how different people would play, and then a fairly extraordinary amount of vetting and research, you know, kind of opposition research to see what's in any somebody's past that might actually come out. Um, and then all of that starts to get winnowed down. You get to a, a short list, uh, which they then give to the nominee. And then the nominee interviews people and then makes their final choice. And so that's like the broad strokes of it. And so we're uh, this episode comes out, we're really less than two weeks away from the start of the convention. So that's certain that is going to force us a decision to be made is that you can't leave the convention without a nominee. And the convention starts on August 17th. So although, all indicates it's 2020, you never know. This is true. <laughs> this is actually true. But all indications are that he'll announce the decision the week of August 10th, right? The podcast comes out on Thursday, the 6th. So he's in the process of interviewing people from everything we know, having these one-on-one -on -one interviews. I think it's going to happen. He's going to sit down with his wife this over the weekend and the two of them will grapple or discuss it and hopefully come to some decision. Um, it should be noted that Biden is in some in these types of decisions famously indecisive. And there's this great book, really a seminal book on presidential politics called What It Takes the Way to the White House by Richard Ben Kramer, the late Richard Ben Kramer. Um, his daughter, Ruby Kramer, is actually now a political reporter uh, for BuzzFeed. Yeah. yeah. And so this is like a 800 page book or something. Um, it's very, very good and compelling about the 1988 presidential race. And it goes into great detail about how tortured Biden's decision making process was about running and who the staff should be and when he should announce and whether he should announce. And I just find that very illuminating and relevant to this moment, right? And there's also an article, maybe C, 2015. And it was the title of the article is What Happened the Five Other Times Joe Biden Was Deciding Whether to Run for President, right? There's definitely a lot of uh, fluidity in his DNA around how to actually make these decisions. Um, and so I think that that is what's happening now. I strongly believe he has not yet decided. Um, I think it is a very fluid situation. He'll do these final interviews, and then he's going to really try to think about ultimately what does his gut tell him? And that's going to be how he'll make the decision while everybody is swirling around and lobbying and trying to position and posture and whatnot. So that's kind of where we're at. And I expect the decision will be next week. I think everybody does. Slight possibility could push to the end of the week of the 10th, but the week after that is the convention. He's got to choose by then. So we know from following the news that Biden has a slate of really ultimately incredible candidates before him to choose from. And they're all quite different from one another and was wondering what are the different factors that you think he'll be weighing in making his final decision? Yeah, so Congressman Jim Clyburn from South Carolina was probably the single most influential person in Biden getting the nomination. And then it was South Carolina and black voters in South Carolina who flipped the script of the race and propelled him to the front. He broke it down to like these very three simple factors, right? He says this vetting, polling and simpatico. And I think that's absolutely true. So the vetting has been going on. You're seeing different pieces of that come out. Well, so-and-so said this back in 1983 or whatnot. And so there's a whole thing there. So you don't want to have any surprises. And then there's the polling to see who would perform best with which demographic groups. And so I've you know, definitely have heard that there's been a lot of that going on. And then lastly, this simpatico point. And I think that's going to be actually much more significant than people realize in this particular process is that because Trump is doing so poorly 
and Biden is so far ahead in the polls. And that I do believe that, and we talked about this in a previous episode, that the college-educated whites who had taken a chance on Trump have all abandoned him, or not all of it, but largely. And so he's got about as many white votes as a Democrat can get, which is not a majority of whites. People should always hold on to remember that point, the implications of that. But it makes him a very, very strong candidate. So he's going to get the lion's share of voters of color. There's still a question of how many will turn out, but he's in an extraordinarily strong electoral position if we can actually have an election, which is another topic we should take uh, such an Such another topic we should yes, take another exactly. time. <laughs> Can't so, but he's not in a like a desperate or a precarious political position where he really needs to shore up this constituency, where he really needs to send a signal over there. So that allows the personal factor to become a larger uh, part of the equation than it might normally be. And so I do think that he'll have his final list and then he is going to think about what, because he feels very much that he was this like, well, my mom's phrase, Ace Boone Coon, <laughs> good buddy of Obama. And they were, you know, whatever, had their bromance and whatnot. And he aspires to that with his vice president. And so that I think is going to be a bigger factor than people may appreciate. Yeah, just definitely his, uh, his comfort zone and the fact that he has more breathing room to make his own decision without feeling like hemmed in. Right. By a close something like a close race where this might make some huge difference. Uh, but speaking of old white guys and their comfort zones, who they feel simpatico with and comfortable with, I wanted to just pivot real quickly and talk about this discussion. It just bothers me a lot. So I want to make sure we touch upon it. Discussion in articles and social media that's basically criticism of some of the finalists for being too aggressive, too ambitious. Right. And, you know, that just, it just drives me nuts. It just really triggers me because yeah. uh, we don't really have these conversations about men and certainly not yeah. white men ever. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly if they're the words that are being used are not kind of they don't get painted in a negative way. If anything, it makes them come off more successful and yeah. driven and, and it's, it's, it's a positive attribute. But since we're talking about women, primarily women of color, and let me just say that this particular criticism has been directed at two black women. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think your point is, is correct and worth emphasizing, right? And we had this historic number of candidates running for president in 2019-2020 on the Democratic side. And it's just, and a lot of it, without naming any names, was a long line of undistinguished white men. And yet all of them felt like, well, I should be president. I should be president. Right? Yes. Somebody this, said, this. oh, I'm born for it, right? Oh, yes. They had that. <laughs> and then you get this, what's his face? This white guy who challenged Pelosi out of Ohio. He couldn't even run and win statewide in Ohio. If, and yet he's going to be like, oh, I should actually be the president of the United States, right? So the level of ambition and aggressiveness on the white male side is, let's just say, notable. So this whole thing about the the, the criticism, the backlash against the women of color and against the black women, correct here, it started with Stacey Abrams. And Stacey said early in the, pro, or like months ago, she says, yeah, I'd love to be vice president, which is not something anybody normally says. You're supposed to be coy and, oh, I'm focused on whatever, but I'm happy to serve, you know? So that's like the kind of way you're supposed to go about it. But Stacey's all like, no, I'd love to be vice president. And she's like, I'm going to be pretty good at it too, right? And so you immediately had this backlash. And again, it was a lot of the white male gatekeepers, people who advised Biden, mm -hmm. people in the media. It's like, oh, that's not how you're supposed to go about it. That's rubbing people the wrong way. So you had it with Stacey. And then most recently, you having it with Kamala, former Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd saying about Kamala Harris, right? Then 
this was leaked. It wasn't like he said it publicly, but somebody leaked that he had said it, right? And that concerns that Kamala's not loyal, that uh, she's is controversial, she's too ambitious, uh, she'll be running for president right away. And so that has gotten out there. But interestingly, there's been kind of a backlash against that, that people have, have actually rallied to Kamala's side. But it's definitely in the air that you're supposed to know your place and then do these black women know their place? And, and some of the white guys who have been used to whispering in Biden's ear have not been fully comfortable with that. Yeah, I'm just trying to jog my memory if I've ever heard a conversation or news article where there was a man, especially a white man, described as too ambitious. And um, I'm, com- I'm coming up short so far. Yeah, and I definitely remember when this all started with Stacy, and I was just thinking, you know, here we go, you know, the attacks on her for being too clear on, you know, what she wanted and that she was going for it. And she did push back hard, though. So I was real proud of her and, you know, not surprised. That's like, she's so strong. I wanted to share this clip of her. It's really good. I know that when I'm asked the question, are you qualified? Can you do this? Then I'm not just answering for myself. I'm being asked this question because I don't look like what people usually look like when they're considered for these jobs. And I've learned over the course of my life, starting out as a young black girl in Mississippi, that if you don't speak up for yourself, then people will take that as permission to underestimate you. But more importantly, it gives them permission to underestimate everyone who looks like you, everyone who reminds them of you. So for every young woman, every young girl, every person of color who has been told not to dream, my responsibility is not only to dream, but to say it aloud. I think that her unapologetically owning her ambition uh, was just really both powerful and inspiring to people and a significant pushback. And part of, I think, frankly, her appeal is that as a strong black woman, not backing down from being a strong black woman is a big part of why people really respect and gravitate to her leadership. Yeah, I know. I know if that's why I'm always just Big Stacy fan, no matter what she does in her lifetime, I just feel like I'm, I'm rooting for her. Okay, so let's step back for a minute and look at who is in the running as we head into the home stretch. Yeah, so in a lot of ways, some level of piecing together tea leaves, um, but the number of the reporters have been quite detailed and tenacious around trying to put together what they can glean um, around where things stand. And the New York Times on August 1st, they had a very comprehensive piece, um, it was of Alexander Burns, stating the state of the race. And so they list 13 finalists. And it's not inconceivable that it could be any one of those, but most of the speculation in the final weeks has really centered around six people. And then the, even the Times piece, it goes through each of them and it talks about how seriously different ones are being vetted. And so there are six who they said are being, quote, very seriously vetted. And so that's Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Susan Rice, Karen Bass, Tammy Duckworth, and Val Demings. So I couldn't help but notice that Stacey's name's not on that list. So uh, are you basically saying she doesn't have a chance, she's out of it? So from what we can glean, it seems that she's not on the short, short list at the moment. But as I was saying, remember, Biden can, can be very indecisive. And there's all this swirling piece in terms of media things coming out, et cetera, et cetera. So until it's done, it's not done. And so there's a scenario where of the current people that are on the short, short list, which are those six that I mentioned, they may decide, well, I, want, I don't want to go with any of those. Or let's take a look at Stacey. Maybe does another interview next week. So it remains fluid until it's locked down and publicly announced. But from what we can tell at the moment, those six are the ones that are most likely to be 
um, the ones who get the final consideration. Okay, so let's talk about each of them a bit. What do we know about them and what would make them a good candidate and eventually a good VP? I thought we would start with candidates that I think most people may not know as much about because some of the individuals people already know a lot about because some of them have been in the news longer and you know ran in the primaries. And have been on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of which, I'd like to remind listeners to take the time and go back and listen to what we kind of think as of as part one of this episode. And it was the episode from April 16th, and it's titled The Six Women Who Could Be Vice President. In that episode, we discussed several of the top contenders, but not everyone who's currently being talked about. It's just fascinating to me, and it just shows how much whiplash like this process has been because of the individuals you just named compared to our top six list from the April 16th episode. Susan Rice was not on that list, Karen Bass was not on that list, Tammy Duckworth was not on that list, and neither right. was Val Demings. So the majority were not on our last episode. Right. So let's start with Karen Bass. Yeah, so Karen is an incredible leader and she would be an amazing choice. Um, and it's funny how people don't know that much about her in terms of her, you know, she's a long track record and just very distinguished track record, both in social justice and in politics and elective office. So now she's chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, she's a congresswoman from Los Angeles, and she's extremely progressive and has been working for racial and social justice for decades, back to the early 70s, right? So I know her from her work in Los Angeles when she was executive director of a Los Angeles community-based organization called the Community Coalition, COCO, which she really built into a political powerhouse and a social change powerhouse in Los Angeles. And then she went from there to the state legislature, uh, the California State Assembly, running this people-powered campaign in partnership with labor and community groups. And then when she got into legislature, she wound up becoming speaker of the California legislature. Uh, and she was the first black woman to lead a legislative state house in the nation's history. And it's funny that, you know, when people talk about you know, Warren as the progressive and the lefty, Karen has been left and progressive longer than Warren has. So I think that's a very interesting part, but people don't really know her history and her background. Yeah, definitely. I know I was one of those people, but over the past month or so, I've been following the news about her and learning more about her. And I've just become increasingly more impressed and sort of just really intrigued and interested in how she's going to do in this process, which is why I was a bit, you know, bummed or concerned that I have recently seen some articles and news come out that is pointing out things from her past and it's giving her some trouble. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I would actually want to, I mean, this is the nature of the, of the process, right? Is that some, your some name gets floated, it's talking about trial balloon, does it get shot down, right? Then people say, well, what if they did this back in the 70s or they did that in the you know mid 80s and so yeah. therefore they'd be attacked. And so, you know, she went, like a lot of people I know, <laughs> in the Vencer Amos Brigades to Cuba, almost a very progressive lefty thing back in the 70s and 80s. She made a favorable comment about Castro after Castro died. And so there's been a lot of attack on her. So oh, well, the Cuban exiles in, in Miami will don't like that. And that's going to hurt, you know, the kick it in the Florida, et cetera. So yeah, that then this right wing publication has dug up this um, appearance she made at a Scientology church. Oh, Scientology, et cetera. Right. And then, then today something comes out. Says, oh, well, she was, uh, you know, at something with the Nation of Islam. And so what it reveals is very interesting. It reveals the... Um, 
distance from a lot of mainstream media from the communities of color and the African-American community in particular. So you could say, oh yeah, Scientology Church. You, or you could, or you could uh, frame it as there was a grouping of 6,000 black people in her district and she went to speak to that gathering and to try to be respectful to them, which is what elected officials are actually supposed to do. But then that's been turned into, oh, she's Scientology. Even to the extent of progressives, you know, like Marcos at Daily Kills, with rescinding his endorsement of her because of that, which I really am frankly disappointed that he fails to look at the totality of her career and record, which is a career and record that is more progressive than anybody in this final round of consideration. So she's been taking all these attacks and it's because of her not being as politically mindful of what might come back to haunt her. And so this is what she's actually dealing with now. They're going to have to grapple with, do they want somebody who has deep roots in the black community, but that when you actually dig down in there, somewhat what happened with Obama's uh, minister back in 08, that people are like, oh my God, his minister's, you know, harshly critical of white supremacy. That's, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> so Karen's going through some of that dynamic right now. Given that then, what do you think her chances are right now? Well, I, if you would ask me two to three weeks ago, I probably would have said that she was super likely to actually be chosen. I mean, this whole process, because of these types of attacks, you don't want to surge in in momentum too early because people are, everybody comes after you. And so she surfaced and she began to get momentum, you know, kind of at the right time of all of this, but then all, but it may have been slightly too soon with all these attacks. So I do think that her, you know, momentum has been blunted and she's receded a little bit. I mean, I had, I, I had knew this, but I had forgotten that, um, I knew that her daughter had actually died in a car crash, um, I think it was maybe a decade ago. And that's obviously a key part of her, you know, personal story and identity. But I had not put together actually that that's what happened with Biden. That Biden's daughter and first wife died in a car crash. And so that's what I'm saying about the personal part. Who knows, right? That when they when they sit down, maybe they bond over that, and then Biden feels this deep personal connection, and then that actually is what tips the scale. So I don't think she's as strong a candidate because of all these other political factors, but you never know on the personal side. Okay, so let's talk about Kamala. What uh, what are you thinking about her chances now? Uh, she's also got a complex set of factors, if we could call it, facing her over the over the course of this process. And she has, between her career and the fact that she ran in the primary, she has been basically a subject to a longer period of criticism during this election cycle and more under the microscope than some of the what we might call the new newcomer contenders. I mean, a lot of it is in terms of like who's going to win the Veep stakes. You know, Kamala is very well positioned and in some ways you might say there's certainly no one more likely than her to be chosen at this point. And so it's partly because she's been able to navigate these factors, the kind of the things that have knocked Karen out of the mix have not come to, to knock Kamala out. And then this is just how crazy all of the politics is and social changes. So she built her career on law enforcement, which, you know, I certainly understand in terms of what somebody has to do as a person of color and a woman of color running as a, in a racist and sexist society. But then we had this whole racial reckoning, police brutality that actually, I think, hurt her chances. But then this country has a short memory in terms of dealing with racial reckoning. So that's kind of receded. So through all of that, she has actually, um, I think, emerged in a very strong position. I mean, what's going to be interesting going forward is that she, I think, could quite likely be the pick. And I think it would have a very positive impact on the culture in the country, partly because just 
culturally and, and, and symbolically, what she represents, that image is, will be quite powerful. So you don't just have the old white guys, you have this very culturally comfortable black woman. And to inject that into the nation's images is going to be very powerful and very meaningful in the same way it was with Obama. And my uncle you know, once texted me, I just love to watch Obama walk. Right? And he was giving this speech, talking, you know, referencing Jay-Z's dirt on his shoulders and brushing off his shoulder. So that cultural stuff counts. But it's going to be interesting is that if Kamala is the VP, she was going to run into political headwinds really as soon as January. I don't think people, I mean, we shouldn't be focused on that. we got to get this dude out of the White House. But that the level of change that this country is going to need and that is being demanded in this, between the pandemic and the racial reckoning and the economic crisis is going to require very far-reaching public policy changes. And that's what's going to be demanded by particularly young people and people of color. You're already seeing it. The people like Jessica Bird, who was critical in putting forward the BREATHE Act that really laid out a 21st Century Civil Rights Act. And that these young people, these young Black people, for all of Biden's success, did not support Biden in the primaries. They went actually with Bernie. And so you're going to have this moment where the administration is going to be more conservative than the growing sectors of the electorate, particularly the electorate of, of color, is going to want. And then you're going to have this dynamic that whoever is vice president is going to have to own that record at a time when the growing energy is going to be for a much more progressive type of leadership. And that's going to be a difficult reality for Kamala to navigate if, in fact, she is the vice president. Another person who's moved up in the Veep stakes ranking that I think there are a lot of people who don't know that much about her is Susan Rice. But you actually know her. Yeah, no, Susan and I were, were well, what I love about this is that it was like, oh, you know, Biden's so old, so we have to have somebody younger, et cetera. <laughs> and then so you get people who are my age peers and they're all like, oh, the younger ones. Like, oh, I'm still yeah, young. Yeah, you're still young. So, <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> so yeah, no, I was, uh, I was president of Black Student Union at Stanford back in the mid 80s when Susan won the Rhodes Scholarship. And I think she was one of the first people of black people to win a Rhodes Scholarship. So folks don't know, the Rhodes Scholarship comes from the money of Cecil Rhodes, who was a Southern African white guy. The country Rhodesia was named after him, a very notably a white racist man. And then after liberation, the country was changed to be named Zimbabwe. And then note in terms of the connections around the pod and whatnot. So Zimbabwe is next door to South Africa. Stanford has a Stanford in South Africa campus. And that is where Michael Tubbs, guest from the last podcast, met then Stanford student Evan Spiegel, who went on to form Snapchat and then used some of that money to give $20 million to Stockton for the Stockton Scholars. So you have all these different connections here. But I remember when uh, Susan won the Rhodes Scholarship, I said to her, well, we did a reception for her as part of the Black Student Union. It was all like, how can you justify taking that racist Cecil Rhodes' money? And then without missing a beat, she's all like, it's about time he started giving some money to black people. Right. That's so, awesome. Susan, I think that her core instincts are fairly progressive and that her career has been like as a diplomat, international service, the, she was the representative to the UN. She worked in Obama and Clinton administration in terms of Africa policy and international affairs. And in that context, that's how she knows and worked with Biden. They work together every day in the in the White House. And so that's partly what also gives her, I think, a good chance is that they have this personal relationship and she has the stature and experience of having worked in the White House. The other person I want to quickly talk about is Tammy Duckworth. She's a U.S. Senator of Illinois, and she's the only Asian American in the mix. And what yeah. I've learned in some recent conversations is, again, people recognize her name, but there are many people don't even know that she's Asian American. And yeah. that's part of, uh, she's multiracial Asian American, like my daughter. And so maybe some people just, they 
see the surname and it doesn't sound Asian, so they don't assume she's Asian. Her dad was white. Her mother is Thai Chinese. Um, excited to see her be considered not just because she's an Asian American woman, but because of her personal history and her the many personal and physical challenges she has had to overcome. And she pursued, continue to pursue this career of leadership. She's uh, served two terms in the House. She's former director of the Illinois Department of Veteran Affairs. And she's a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel. And the story that uh, many people do know is that she was a helicopter pilot who lost both of her legs in combat while serving in Iraq. And she then became the first disabled woman elected in U.S. Congress. And on top of that, <laughs> this makes her like super, super kick ass in uh, my book. Just a couple of years ago at age 49 or thereabouts, she had her first baby and oh. then she continued to raise her baby and her toddler to this day while serving our country as a senator. So it's exciting to have her on the list. Yeah. And then people should not sleep on her, right? In terms of as a, as a candidate that, you know, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to, but the Republicans and the conservatives continue to try to dismiss her, but when somebody lost both of their legs in the, in the, in the, in the military and in the, in the foreign service, that gives some credibility. And you take that, she really has carved out an identity as uh, expert around veterans affairs, military issues and disability uh, issues as well. And you're saying she's a woman of color and a mother. And so a lot of those, we shouldn't discount symbolism. And so the power of the image, right? And this is in terms of really sending a symbol, you know, who is going to be standing next to or paired with, right, this 78-year-old white guy. And so this Asian-American woman veteran uh, who has lost her life, that image could be quite powerful. And there's so much intensity around the various supporters of the various black women candidates that the politics of it are going to be complicated for Biden. And in some ways, he is going to, you know, disappoint some sector of the black community by choosing one of the black women and not one of the others. And so in a lot of ways, you could see a scenario where he goes with Duckworth. Woman of color, has these credentials, doesn't have the, the quote unquote baggage to be attacked. And um, it's not inconceivable at all that she would be the pick. Okay, Steve. So we're getting close to wrapping up our show for today, but we can't even begin to wrap up until I get to ask you the like final question, drum roll, please. If I had to ask you right now in this moment, who do you think it's going to be? Well, I'm going to take a slight dodge in that I don't think Biden knows who it's going to be. Right. So there is that. But in terms of all the different factors we've talked about, the politics, the relationship, the, it's also part of the relationship thing is um, how does he want to be seen, right? Does he want to be seen as like this her heroic figure around breaking this racial barrier? And I do think that that's something a lot of progressive liberal whites, frankly, aspire to. If I had to bet, and I only, I'm going to come down to two, I would think it would be either Kamala or Susan Rice would be the person that he picks. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. We shall stay tuned and we shall know relatively soon who he picks. And that's our Veep Stakes section for the day. Uh, I did want to, before we sign off, update all of our listeners about the next phase of our campaign to get Congress to establish a commission to study reparations. Again, this is about the House bill, H.R. 40. And if you missed it, please do go listen to the episode where we cover a lot about this topic. It's called Reparations 101. 
Yeah, so we just want to update people real quickly on that is that, you know, there's all these pronouncements around people's solidarity with black lives and they're down for addressing systemic and historic racism, et cetera, from all these different Congress people and all these uh, white Congress people, um, to be clear. And yet when it comes down to this issue of what are we going to do to formally begin the process to examine the legacy of slavery and what should be done about it in terms of its lingering effects, this bill, H.R. 40, which only sets up a commission, remains stuck in the Judiciary Committee that, you know, chaired uh, by Jerry Nadler. And so, frankly, there's a level of fear and timidity around the political consequences of getting behind it. So we did a poll to try to address that concern. We did a poll and finds that 86% of Democratic voters want H.R. 40 to be passed, want this commission to be established. Now a majority of all voters uh, um, so support it, which is a 20-point jump from just last year, and yet it remains stuck. So we're launching this whitelist campaign, and we're, we're going to name the white Democrats who have yet to sign on as co-sponsors to H.R. 40. And a lot of them have made favorable comments and statements about how much they care about what's happening to black people in America, and yet they've not taken the step to sign up uh, as a co-sponsor for the bill. And so on Democracy in Color website, we've got a list of these people who are on our white list. We're going to be tweeting it out to the world, and we're going to be challenging these white Congress people to put some actions behind their rhetoric and add their names as co-sponsors to this bill. And that's how they can get off of the white list. So that's the white list, folks. Check it out. Take some action. Let's move this thing. All right. So here we are in these uh, the, these days of the political process, the Veep stakes moving forward, and um, we shall see where that all ends up. We hope this episode has been illuminating and helpful um, if, in some fashion. And we want to thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you haven't yet joined our mailing list, you can sign up at our website, democracyincolor.com. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with support from the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.